Well, we said it several times this morning. If you would repeat after me, O magnify the Lord with me. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And let us exalt his name together. One more time. O magnify the Lord with me. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And let us exalt his name together. So we're going to continue where we left off this morning. Turn with me once again to Job chapter 1. And while you're turning to Job 1, I'm going to just say a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time tonight. Our Father, we turn once again to your glorious word. It alone is our authority. It alone is our source of revelation as to precisely what you require in worship, how we may be qualified as worshipers through the cross of Jesus Christ, and how we are to worship you subsequent to salvation. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that we would look only to your word, not to tradition, not to feeling, not to emotion, not to modern practices, but to look solely and only to the source of our understanding of our God, and that is your word. I pray, Lord, that the words that are spoken tonight would be accurate, true, and pleasing to heaven. I pray that the listening ears and hearts here tonight and listening online would be pleasing to you as we hear your truth and determine to obey. I pray, Lord, that would be the outcome and that this little body of believers, Lord, would be seen as obedient to you and that we would be found worthy of your praise and your commendation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we began examining the question, what is biblical worship? As part of our series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions, and I chose the passage in Job 1, 20 through 21 as our home base because, as I said this morning, it obliterates any of our cultural notions of worship. You, you can't compare what Job is doing with any experience we have. And so just to get us caught up again, and for any who perhaps this is the first message that they're listening to, we remember that wealthy and prosperous Job, a worshiper of God, he's just gotten devastating news And in a grand spirit realm exchange between God and Satan, Satan has denigrated God. He has put God down by claiming that God's faithful are only faithful because God gives good things to them. And we backed up a little bit and looked at chapter 1, verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Job answered the Lord and said, Does Job, or then Satan answered the Lord rather and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And so the devastating news that Job has received is that all of his property, all of his wealth has either been stolen or destroyed and that his 10 adult children have all died in a terrible accident when one house fell upon all of them. And what did Job do? Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And we saw this morning that this verb form of worship means he did it over and over and over again. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, this morning we examined the first three of four basic truths about biblical worship. And just to review quickly, the first basic truth is that the heart of worship is total submission. And we saw that the attitude of worship all throughout Scripture, uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, is the attitude of bowing down, of an inferior submitting to a superior. The second basic truth is that the meekness of worship is inwardly genuine. This meekness that acknowledges that that, that you have no rights, that you have no privileges that aren't given to you. You're meek before the Lord. We don't come in pride. We don't come with our head up. We come with our head down. And if our head is up, it's because he lifts it and he lifts our countenance. And then the third basic truth we saw was that the focus of worship is sovereign God. When Job here says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, that we're not worshiping in order to exalt ourselves. We're worshiping to debase ourselves. And Job has worshiped when God gave to him and Job has worshiped when God took away from him. And his view of God never changes. It stays the same. His view of God is not dependent on what God is doing for him at that moment. Now I'd like to slow down a bit as we look at this fourth basic truth. And I'll end this evening with two little extras here. We're going to do, first of all, a summary or a synthesis of a theology of worship. And I'd like to apply what we've learned all day in six or seven different ways. And so we'll do a summary and then an application. But first, let's look at this fourth basic truth. And the fourth basic truth is this. The goal of worship is right response. The goal of worship is right response. You remember the definition of worship from this morning. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people. And we saw how important that is. Worship is the response to God by redeemed people for his existence, his character, and his mercy to us through Christ. So what is this response? Well, look at Job's response. What is his end goal here? The last phrase in verse 21, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is one of the main reasons that this example of worship is completely unable to be compared with our modern experience. Because Job here, you would think that his ultimate focus would be, Lord, look what just happened to me. And I want you to know this something. He doesn't make a single request. He's lost everything. And he doesn't make a single request. His focus is singularly, blessed be the name of the Lord, naming God as the one who is to be blessed. This is the mark of a man who has already known how to worship for many decades. That he understands his priorities. The goal of worship is right response. What's he responding to? Now let me ask you a question. If worship is based in emotion, as we said this morning, is is often the case in evangelicalism today, that our worship is somehow based in what we feel How can you possibly worship in this moment? There is no possible way you can feel the exhilaration and the excitement and the the rousted up joy, so to speak, that a a loud band and that a, a crowded room will bring to you. It's not possible. And so because of that, 
this principle of the goal of worship is right response is so important because right response to what? What we said in the definition, to God's existence, to his character, and to his mercy. Those things are not dependent on our circumstances. They have nothing to do with our circumstances. That is God's unchanging, immutable character. So worship is a response. And what do these responses include? Well, scripturally, the, the list is actually pretty short. What do these responses include? They, respond, they, they include elements such as prayer. That we talk to God. That is an act of worship. It includes confession of sin, that we tell the Lord that we know and we acknowledge our sinfulness. It includes the preached word of God, that both doing preaching and listening to preaching is an act of worship. It includes singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It includes giving to the Lord's work. In the Old Testament, you wouldn't dare show up to think that you're going to appear before God without bringing a gift. You would never do that. It includes baptism. Baptism by immersion is an act of worship because you are, you are signifying that I give all of my life, everything that I am, to Christ. And I am identified with him in his death and in his resurrection. Receiving the Lord's table is an act of worship. It's one of the few that's, that's commanded by the Lord Jesus. That we're commanded to remember him when we receive the cup and receive the bread. The fellowship of the saints is an act of worship. It's important that we fellowship with one another. It's important that we are intertwined with each other's lives. That's part of our worship together. We're being the body of Christ, not the body parts of Christ. And then finally, lives lived in holiness and obedience to the word of God. That's basically a fairly comprehensive list of what scripture says worship is. Prayer, confession of sin, the preached word of God, singing, giving to the Lord's work, baptism, receiving the Lord's table, a fellowship of the saints, lives lived in holiness and obedience to the word. That's fairly comprehensive. And yet in our formal worship, as we talked about this morning, through the poisonous influence of the early revivalists of the 19th century and the devastating impact of the three waves of the charismatic movement, we've been indoctrinated that our response to God is based more on these man-centered traditions and less on what the Bible actually says. That if enough people are doing this, if enough people are doing something, then it must be right. And I'm going to deviate just here for a moment because I have time to do so, and I'm the only one standing here, so I'm going to just take a moment. I was doing some reading this week, and there's a man who popularized the ability to gather a group of people, and he, and he gives a list. The, and the, the goal is to gather a group of people and create such a frenzy of emotion in one particular direction that, that people begin to go down like dominoes emotionally so that they're afraid to stand against what they see happening if they believe it to be wrong. He listed several elements that were to be uh, present. A, a, a large crowd was necessary, lots of music, lots of noise, lots of upbeat emotion, lots of responsiveness, that there were to be uh, uh, things that, that people do physically in order to show that they're on board with whoever's up here on the platform. And if you were the person not doing those physical things, then people looked at you, and, and if there were enough people doing all the things and agreeing with what was happening, and few enough people not doing it, then the people who were in the majority uh, kind of looked down on those who were not. 
And this idea was perfected and it was used. It's been used by uh, liberal groups today openly. But this technique was described in detail in a book called Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. That was his strategy. You, you, Hitler failed in the early 20s when he went around door to door trying to hand out pamphlets saying, I'd like to take over the government. Would you please uh, vote for me? That failed. But when he gathered 10,000 people in an arena and got them all whipped into a frenzy, that succeeded. Now, that exact sort of dynamic is what has happened over the past century in the Church of Jesus Christ, a, a use of that group dynamic and that emotion. That's, that's why you don't see uh, the so-called miracles and the healings and speaking in tongues and all of that necessarily happening that much in a private context. It's always in the worship service, in the emotion of the moment. And all the crazy things that happened during the, the signs and wonders movement, the, the, the time when uh, the big thing in the church was barking like a dog or uh, spirit-filled laughter, things you don't see anywhere in Scripture, and yet people by the tens of thousands around the world were buying into it hook, line, and sinker because of that group dynamic and nobody bothering to say, just curious here, never seen group laughter in the Bible as a worship, as an act of worship. What does the Bible actually say? I prayed about this and decided I'd like to use a, a tender example. And for some of you here, it might even be an emotional example about how the influence of those movements has become so part of our worship landscape that, that we even associate the lack of some of those elements as being unspiritual. That if you don't do certain things, you're not a spiritual person. Or in charismatic circles, they would just say, you're not filled with the Spirit. And the example I'd like to use that may be tender even for some of you here is the practice of hand-raising, particularly during, during the time of singing. That's been the practice that has been now a part of our evangelical landscape across the board, doesn't matter whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, Independent, Charismatic, Pentecostal. It's across the board. Now, this practice is generally associated with happiness and joy, and even perhaps what some might call the rush of a corporate worship experience. I'm going to come back to that association with happiness and joy in a bit. Now, we always want to let the Word of God speak for us, but what can happen sometimes is that when a tender topic is brought up, an emotional response can happen. You know what emotional uh, responses do to your critical thinking? It shuts it down. And so I want to encourage you, if this is emotional for you, just put that aside and just engage our minds together. In fact, to engage our minds, let me just give you several initial observations as we walk through this kind of long example. First of all, there's no doubt that worshiping God may involve physical responses. What did we see this morning? That worship, the main worship words in the Bible involve bowing down to the Lord. And the obvious question is, well, why don't we just do that here? Well, there's not room for us to do it here. And it's not very nice to our older folks to say, for them to walk in and say, hey, where are all the chairs? Well, just lay on the floor. That's what we're doing now. And, but it, the heart attitude that represents the physical shouldn't negate the fact that there are physical responses. We say, let's bow our heads in prayer. Why do we do that? Because there's a precedent in Scripture. We might lift our heads. Why would we do that? Because there's precedence in Scripture for that as well. There, Jesus prayed with his head bowed. He prayed with his head up. 
What else do we do that's physical? We stand for the highest moments of worship, don't we? When we sing and when we read scripture, there's a clear biblical precedence for standing when the most solemn things are done in the presence of God. We move with the music that's inspiring us, don't we? We don't have a law against that. You, you can't help it. You, you move, and in certain cultures, nobody can help it. It's just part of who we are. We've already seen in Scripture the bowing down. I mentioned that a moment ago. Sometimes when we're doing an upbeat worship song or hymn, we clap. And somebody says, well, that's part of the charismatic movement. No, it's not. That's Psalm 47 and Psalm 98 that associates clapping with joyful songs. And so we don't deny that our physical bodies are involved in worship. I I don't think that when you appear before the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time that you're going to be able to stand still, unless he says to. I don't think that's going to be the case. We're not aiming to be the frozen chosen or the petrified sanctified. That's not our goal. This is a second initial observation just to get our minds going here. Let me say up front that the lifting of the hands in a moment of praise is not in opposition to Scripture. I want to be very clear about that. It is not in opposition to Scripture. We don't have a hand-raising patrol. Uh, There are no security volunteers in the balcony with Nerf guns and a scope to stick a dart to your hand if if your hand goes up. And you, you might say, I was just scratching my head. Don't shoot at me. We don't have that because lifting of the hands in the moment of praise is not in opposition to Scripture. But one more observation, while there is no opposition to lifted hands in worship, there are no commands to lift hands in the gathering of God's people in Scripture as well. And some of you right now might have some Bible verses going through your head. I'm going to cover them. There are no commands to lift hands in the gathering of God's people. And I would gently challenge anyone in any element of worship, but we're using the lifted hands as an example. I would challenge anyone to be able to answer the question, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Because I've already demonstrated that the raising of hands is strongly associated with a false charismatic gospel of health, wealth, and miracles. You ask the average evangelical, how do you know a church is charismatic? They will generally say because they raise their hands. That makes them charismatic. That's not true, but that's the association that's very strong. And it's strongly associated with a man-centered focus on emotionalism. And here's why this and other similar expressions of worship could be a concerning issue. In most cases, the raising of hands is not a thought-out biblical response, but it's a conditioned response. It's something that's taught and trained, and it's almost always associated with music or emotionalism. We said this this morning, nobody lifts up their hands in praise when the offering's being taken or, or when the announcements are being given. It's with the music. It's also associated with the self-focus idea in corporate worship, that it can be an effort to draw attention to yourself and to dramatically harm the focus of others, particularly in a setting that's not a normal practice. It is, much more often than not, simply a learned, conditioned response. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, it could be a response to a command given by a worship leader. Everybody lift up your hands. And now you've got... The, and a little girl just lifted up her hand. She's so obedient. That was so sweet that she would do that. But now you've got those who are wrong if they don't and right if they do. Because you told them to do something. 
It can be a response to the change in music, especially volume and key changes. If you've ever been in, in a service where they go from the key of G to the key of A flat, everybody's hands go up. It's just a better key, that's all. So there's no spirituality to it. Or it can simply be the conditioned response when the music simply starts in the first place, that that's what you've gotten used to. I've observed this personally in, in somewhat of a, a interesting and humorous way. A couple of years ago at the Getty Sing Conference, and one afternoon, they had a, a wonderful hymn sing. And I think it was the Grand Old Opry, wasn't it? It was at the Grand Old Opry. And, and our family got to sit behind a man who chose to waste this opportunity and distract everyone around him by doing a live stream feed on social media from his phone. He was giving commentary along the way. So you can picture him like this and talking about what's going on, panning the audience on occasion here and there. And he was managing to have a conversation with a friend next to him at the same time. And while he's messing with his phone with one hand, talking to his friend at the same time, when the music started, his free hand shot up into the air. With clearly no attention to the actual lyrics or to the point of the hymn that was beginning, there was no thought as to why, but just, this is what you're supposed to do when the music starts. And less importantly, he and his friend were also covering up the words on the screen so that all of us behind them were having to do gymnastics to try to see what the words were. I know this is a sensitive issue that can have cultural implications. Some churches perhaps have developed successfully a culture in which the church knows the implications of hand-raising and keeps it in proper perspective. That is rarely, if ever, the case. However, in our culture, which is so heavily influenced by Pentecostalism, it is generally thought to be an individualistic outburst of some sort of perceived emotional high or, again, just an emotional response. I have witnessed a woman gossiping to her husband horribly about somebody else sinning in that moment. And when the worship music starts, her hands go up. She's literally sinning and worshiping at the same time. I don't know how that's possible, but it's a conditioned response. Now, I said that there are no commands in Scripture to raise hands in gatherings of God's people. Let me demonstrate this. There are no commands. There are numbers of passages we're going to go to. I'm not going to have you turn to any of them. You might first be going in your minds to the only verse in all of the New Testament that mentions lifting hands. So we'll start there. 1 Timothy 2.8, the Apostle Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You say, how much more obvious is that? We're commanded to lift our hands. Well, first of all, this is in the context of prayer. And there's not even a really strong case that this is speaking of literally lifting hands. The hands are not the main point of this, this verse. The holiness of the hands are the main point. It represents praying without anger or quarreling that your hands, as it were, are clean. That you haven't been in sin. And this certainly can't be stretched to be a prescription of what ought to be done during the singing time in the corporate worship service. I'm going to return back to this because the Apostle Paul was an Old Testament scholar. And so when he talks about lifting hands, he is going to have a clear intention. But I'll come back to that. That's our only New Testament example. So we have to rely on the Old Testament. And I think the context of hand raising in the Old Testament might be surprising to you. I want to start off with the one, the singular example that may, outside chance, but may possibly be construed as raising hands associated with joyful expression. And that's Psalm 134, verses 1 through 3. The only example that may be construed. 
The psalmist says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now that might be an expression of joyful worship, but the evidence is not strong. And in fact, there are some factors that would suggest the opposite. The first factor is that this is a song of a worshiper visiting the temple of Jerusalem at night. And he's addressing the nighttime temple guard. In fact, this word for night doesn't mean evening. It means deep night. It means midnight or after. He's there in the middle of the night. So that brings us to a second factor. If the worshiper is at the temple in the midnight hours, almost certainly there's only one reason. He can't sleep. And if he can't sleep and he's going to the temple, this is not an expression of great happiness or joy in the Lord. This is a, this is a time of prayer, to pray for a crisis, to pray for a need. Now, there isn't certainty that this is a time of crisis or need, but traditionally, you didn't go to the temple at 2 a.m. to worship in joy and to jump around raising your hands. So the best we can do from both, both 1 Timothy 2 and Psalm 134 is a definite, maybe but improbable, that the raising of hands is during the time of corporate worship together and an expression of joy and happiness. So what is the primary association with the raising of hands in Scripture? I think it's going to be surprising to you. Again, lots of Scriptures, so I won't have you turn. Little digression here. There are two that we'll, we won't consider. Genesis 14.22 and Deuteronomy 32.40 both give examples of lifting hands in the sense of raising a hand to take an oath. And so we won't consider those. That's not in our context here. But I want to just have you consider numbers of passages, and you, you might just note these down. We don't have time to turn to all of them. But first consider 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8 records Solomon's dedication of the brand new temple of God in Jerusalem. And we seem to have an example of this joyful occasion of lifted hands in a gathering of God's people. Or do we? 1 Kings 8.22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Solomon is there as an example, leading worship with his hands lifted up. 1 Kings 8.38, this is Solomon praying, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house. He's asking that prayers be answered. And again, he gives the example of men stretching their hands out. And in 1 Kings 8, 54, Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. So what's actually happening here? First of all, we want to be accurate. There is a Hebrew word for hand, and it is not used here. The word used for hand in these instances are specific to the palms of the hand. What does that change? That changes this. This is not this. This is this. And there's a big difference, and I'll show you what that is in a moment. Second issue here, this prayer of dedication, if you read this prayer in 1 Kings 8, this is not an expression of happiness. This is a pleading for mercy and help, especially, Solomon says, in the days to come when Israel forgets her God. In fact, you notice that the people stretching out the palms of their hands, we said in verse 38, they're not doing so because the music changed key. 
They're not doing so because of a stylish music leader telling them to. They're stretching out their hands, knowing the affliction of their hearts. They're stretching out their hands because of conviction and because of guilt. Their own sinful hearts. Or we could consider Ezra chapter 9 verse 5. Ezra 9, 5, Ezra is the spiritual leader of the returned exiles. And they've just learned, Ezra's just learned rather, that many priests and Levites are intermarrying with foreign women. And what was that going to make happen? The Jewish people were going to cease to exist as a people if this kept on. And so in Ezra 9, verse 5, Ezra tells the story, At the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And Ezra prays a prayer of confession and lament and anguish of his soul. Again, the Hebrew says, with the palms of his hands outstretched. In the same story, consider Nehemiah 8 verse 6. In Nehemiah 8, verse 6, Ezra has gathered all the returned exiles outside of Jerusalem to hear the word of God uh, read to them for about six hours. They even had a special platform built just for this day. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 5, rather, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people on the platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. They stood for six hours to hear the word of God. Next verse. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And you might say, oh, Steve, you missed this one because, look, they're in in a worship gathering and they're happily saying, Amen, Amen, and lifting up their hands. Well, three important details. First, Amen, amen is not restricted to an expression of joyful happiness. It's an, it's an expression of agreement, of affirmation. I agree with what's being said. I agree with what's being said. The second detail, the rest of verse 6 says, And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So what does this look like? Amen, amen. The hands are going up right as they fall to their faces. And third, most important detail, the reason they were saying amen, amen, the reason they were bowing to the ground, the reason they were lifting their hands was because they were grieving and weeping and mourning their sin. They were inconsolable. They were heartbroken after hearing the word of God and how far they had drifted, how disobedient they as a nation had been. Because in in the next verses, Nehemiah 8, verse 9, Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Listen to this. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They were distraught. They were destroyed. And it took their spiritual leaders to say, No, this is a day of joy. It's okay. Consider Psalm 28, the psalm of King David. Psalm 28, verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. This is a psalm of lament. and David is expressing that he's afraid he's going to die at the hands of wicked men. And in his time of despondency, he's reaching his hands toward the temple, which was the place associated with God's presence. His lifted hands were in tears and in cries for help. 
Consider Psalm 63, another Psalm of David. Psalm 63, verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. The situation in Psalm 63 is that David is being hunted by his enemies. He's laying awake at night in anxiety. Verse 6 says he's awake all night. He's experiencing negative emotions that are so strong he's unable to sleep. We've never had that, have we? And he's lifting his desperate hands toward the Lord in fear and in anguish. Or consider Psalm 88, verse 9. Psalm 88 is sometimes called the saddest psalm. And it contains the story of the extreme physical illness of another psalmist, Heman the Ezraite. And Heman is so sick that he's isolated. He feels hopeless. In fact, he, he feels as if the wrath of God is upon him. And, he, and he's, he was one of David's psalmists, one of his musicians. And this psalm, Psalm 88, features such encouraging words such as wrath, horror, sorrow, terrors, affliction, dread, and multiple times the word darkness. The word darkness is the last word in the psalm. But he says in Psalm 88, verse 9, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Again, the palms of the hands. Consider Psalm 141. In Psalm 141, the the psalmist is desperate to maintain his godly character in the face of extreme opposition. He requests in verse 3, set a guard over my mouth. Isn't that a great prayer? Set a guard over my mouth. He asks in verse 4, do not let my heart incline to any evil. He begs in verse 5 to have the grace to receive criticism, even from those who would do evil to him. But he also begs for help and rescue From verse 9, the trap that they have laid for me. The psalm is clearly a lament. It's written in a time of desperation. And yet he opens the psalm by saying, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, meaning hurry up. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I won't belabor this point, but in psalms, The uplifting of the hands is not arguably ever in praise or in thanksgiving, but it's in prayer and desperation. It's a time of requesting urgent help from the Lord. And just briefly, I'm going through every major instance of raising hands in the Old Testament. Briefly, Jeremiah 4.31, the stretching out of the hands of a woman facing her own death at the hands of the wicked. That's not a worship service. That's desperation. Lamentations 1.17, you have the symbolic stretching out of the hands of the city of Jerusalem when under the judgment of God. Lamentations 2.19, the stretching out of the hands to God when under the judgment of God. Lamentations 3.41 and 42, the stretching out of the hands to God in acknowledgement of my rebellion, my transgression, and that I deserve judgment. Now we can return to the Old Testament example that Paul gave Remember, Paul is, a, is an Old Testament scholar, extraordinaire. I'm sorry, the New Testament example he gives, 1 Timothy 2.8. Now, knowing what you know and knowing that you know now what Paul knew, when he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Considering that the Old Testament exclusively refers to the lifting of hands in the context of lament, humility, sadness, despair, petition, dependence, and confession, we can say with confidence that that's what Paul had in mind. 
Those are all the examples he had, particularly considering that Paul was writing to Timothy concerning the wayward teaching and the false doctrine happening in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was serving. So why did Paul say, I call upon the men to lift holy hands? Paul's call to lift holy hands is a call to repentance. It is a call to humble yourselves before the Lord because that's what it always is in the Old Testament. It is a time of humility, lament, despair. Paul is saying, I see the situation in your church. You need to lift up holy hands. You need to despair. You need to cry out to God. You need to ask for mercy. The lifting of the hands in worship is never ever seen in the Bible in the context of singing an upbeat song about your best pal, Jesus. It's never seen in that context. It's never seen in the context of a snazzy music leader whipping up emotion in a big room. And it's never seen in the context of an ecstatic emotional experience, unless that emotional experience is one of grief and anguish. That's when it's seen. You see, the lifting of the hands is not a concert-like, fun-loving, conditioned response that when the drums start playing louder or when all the leaders on stage are going crazy, the lifting of the hands is not yippee. The lifting of the hands is almost always in private and in a time of yearning and desperation. The lifting of the hands is not, look at me, I'm reaching out to God. I told you what the difference would be. The lifting of the hands is not like this. The lifting of the hands is like this. My hands are empty. Oh God, I need help. I have nothing. And I cannot get through this unless you put something in my hands with which I may survive. It's desperation. It's lament. It's humility, it's sadness, it's God putting you in a place where you have nothing. It's despair, it's confession. Now I give this extended point because it's so, so very important that we worship God in spirit, meaning with our whole being, and in what? Truth. In truth and truth alone, not in error. That's just an example of being clear and accurate about our response in worship. So our fourth truth from Job 1, the goal of worship is right response. So what is the right response? Well, I told you we would end our time today giving you a summary or a synthesis of a theology of worship. I'm going to give you seven parts to this summary, and then I have a seven-part application as well. They'll all be short. Seven parts to a short theology of worship. The first part... Worship is the response to revelation. Worship is the response to revelation. I'm going to have you turn to just one more passage. Turn with me to Psalm 19, and we'll spend a moment there. In Psalm 19, is this one that I'm going to read a number of verses. It might be helpful for you to follow along. Psalm 19 contains the Bible's clearest and most succinct revelation or, or teaching on the revelation of God to mankind. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6 speak of general revelation that God has made himself known through creation. This is the general revelation. Psalm 19, verse 1, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Then you get to 
verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11 now switch from the general revelation of God in his creation to the special or the specific revelation of God that God has made himself known through words. I don't think we should ever get over the stunning fact that God has revealed himself in a book that we can hold in our hands. That's stunning. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament make it clear that God has always made the first move toward man. No man can be said to have decided to arbitrarily and independently seek the living God without God having revealed himself first. In Exodus 4.31, the people worshipped because, quote, Yahweh had visited his people. Yahweh had visited the people of Israel in revelation given to Moses. And here in Psalm 19, what is the right response to the fact that God has revealed himself, generally speaking, in creation and specifically in his word, the Bible? It is the response of worship. Verse 14, the last verse. Here's the response. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The response is worship. It's the only response. God isn't interested in the response of interest. He's not interested in the response of distant assent or acknowledgement or even agreement. But worship and submission. That is the response to Revelation. There's a second part of our theology. Worship is a response to the manifest glory of God. Worship is a response to the manifest glory of God. In Exodus 33.10, the people worshipped as they, quote, saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. We don't get to see that today, but we have something much better. We have the word of God. We have the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, the glory of God was manifested so powerfully through the preached word to such a degree that the New Testament era worshiper would submit to Christ. That it was said in, in 1 Corinthians 14.25 that an unbeliever could come into a meeting and hear the word of God spoken and fall on his face and worship. That's the manifest glory of God. And of course, the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is his Son, that's the ultimate. God can manifest himself no better than in Christ. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a third element to our little theology here. Worship is joined forever to sacrifice. Worship is joined forever to sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the worshiper could not be a worshiper of Yahweh without offering the sacrifice for sin. Blood was the key that unlocked the door of entrance into the presence of God. In the New Testament, the blood of Christ, infinitely better than the temporary blood of animals, is the key to the door of becoming a worshiper of God. 
In both Testaments, personal sacrifice of a life lived in obedience to God. This is indelibly marked on the worship of the faithful. Our worship is possible by blood. That's a key element. Let me just throw this at you here. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 1 Peter 1, 2, that we're saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, though with the precious blood of Christ. And you say, well, that's just in our time here. Eventually we forget about sacrifice. No, I was very clear. Worship is eternally linked to sacrifice. Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The choirs in heaven sing to the Lamb of God who was slain. There's a fourth element to our worship theology. Worship demands personal purity. Worship demands personal purity. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's very self-explanatory. You don't go to worship God while you've messed up another relationship and you know it. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, warns the Christian to not worship in an unworthy manner, that we don't come without confessing sin. In Isaiah 6, the vision of the manifest glory of God elicited from Isaiah the prophet an urgent, urgent panicked need for forgiveness, for cleanness. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. He knew he was in trouble. He was appearing before God. Now, he didn't know that was about to happen, but he was unclean and he panicked. Jesus explained this concept with the illustration of washing the disciples' feet in the upper room in John 13. You recall that Peter didn't want to let Jesus, his Lord, wash his feet. Peter said to him, John 13, verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. In other words, the purity demanded by worship is not a re-saving of your soul. It's not a repeat of salvation. We're very clear about this. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your body, as it were, is clean, but you've walked in sinful places and you've done sinful things, and so you need to have your feet cleaned. You need to confess. In other words, worship is to be preceded by confession of sin with the glorious promise that we have as Christians in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness.
Can I put it to you this way? And I think this is a, a major shift in thinking for some. You do not worship God in order to get clean. You get clean so that you may worship God. That's why confession of sin happens first. Here's the fifth element to our little theology of worship. Worship involves theological proclamation. Worship involves theological proclamation. This is the declaration and the proclamation and the exclamation of the character of God. The example of the 24 elders in heaven worshiping clearly involves the naming of the character traits of God. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. The cry, holy, 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 that's directed to God in both the book of Revelation and in Isaiah 6 certainly illustrates that worship involves theological proclamation. Let me put it to you this way. By declaring truth in the songs that you sing, you're giving glory and honor to God. By listening intently to the truths proclaimed in this pulpit, you're giving glory and honor to God. It is an act of worship. Worship involves theological proclamation. Here's a sixth element to our little theology. Worship is defined by a heart attitude of humility. Worship is defined by a heart attitude of humility. We've covered this extensively, so I'm not going to belabor this. But just remember that the major words for worship in both the Old Testament and the New Testament mean to bow down. That true worship of Yahweh, the only living God, without this attitude is not possible. You can't worship in pride. Those are, those are mutually exclusive. Worship involves acknowledgement of God and deprecation of self as compared to God. I think I could argue that that is the main idea of worship in the Bible. And one more part to our little theology. We started off with worship is the response to revelation. Now we close this out with worship is the immediate response to salvation and deliverance. Worship is the immediate response to salvation and deliverance. This was illustrated in the Old Testament in physical deliverance, physical rescue, and more directly in the New Testament as a response to spiritual deliverance from sin. Again, thinking back to 1 Corinthians 14.25, a new believer in Christ instantly falls down in worship and in awe of God. That, that's, that's, his, that's his instinct. If I could put it this way, if you are a true believer in Christ, you are a worshiper. You cannot help yourself. But conversely, if the worship of God is not particularly important to you, then you are not in Christ. You're not one of his. So worship is the response to revelation. It's a response to the manifest glory of God. It's joined forever the sacrifice. It demands personal purity. It involves theological proclamation. It's defined by a heart attitude of humility. And it's the immediate response to salvation and deliverance. I told you I would finish our time today with one final application. What I'd like to do is simply talk to you for a moment about little emphasized acts of genuine worship. Little emphasized. Things that maybe fly under the radar. In our context here, Grace Bible Church on White Lane, what are some little emphasized acts of genuine worship? These will all start with the letter C, and so you might call this Seizing the day for worship. Very simply, 
Little acts, little emphasized acts. Confession of sin. Confession of sin. Now, we're not asking that each of you parade up here and, okay, it's your turn next, and for you, confess all of your sins from this week. We'd be here for months if we did that. But how about Saturday evening? How about early Sunday morning? You get up a little early to have time with the Lord. And, of course, our group opportunity for confession when we're together on Sunday morning. Confession of sin. The second little emphasized act, concentrated listening. Concentrated listening. That is harder than ever in our culture, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that, that thinks that we should only pay attention to something for six or eight seconds. Working hard to grasp a truth, getting rid of the expectation that preaching should be baby food that slides down easily. This might mean deciding to go over your notes on Mondays. It might mean getting into a sermon-based small group. It might mean listening to every message again. There's many members of our church that always listen again. Confession of sin, concentrated listening. How about this little emphasized act of worship? Confessional singing. Confessional singing. That there's a true sense in your heart that you're confessing your belief in these truths to the Lord and encouraging those around you as you do. How do I, what do I mean by this? Very simply, that as Darren is about to start a hymn in your heart, you're saying, Lord, I believe, and then you begin singing. Confessional singing. Here's a fourth C, consistent application. Consistent application that you're determining that your life will be characterized by purposefully taking what you learn and doing something about it. That that's the way you live. There's a fifth little emphasized act of genuine worship, cultivated love. Cultivated love. If worship were purely an individual activity, we wouldn't gather together, right? Part of our worship is loving one another, being in vital and real relationship to one another. Here's a sixth little emphasized act we'll call customary conviction. Customary conviction that you're ready, willing, and eager to be corrected, to learn, and to grow. That you know that that's coming. You expect it every Sunday, every Lord's Day. Proverbs 20, verse 30 says, Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. I gave up a long time ago ever trying to please everybody in the congregation. Now, I only try to please one person in the congregation, and you can't see him. I try to please God. But if you come with the attitude that blows that wound to cleanse away evil, you will become more and more like Christ. Customary conviction that you're used to it. Let me give you one more. We'll call cross-centered bearings. Cross-centered bearings. The compass of your heart in worship ought to be continually pointed to the cross. That's where worship really originates and where it centers. The cross is the central feature of our worship, isn't it? The cross is where the body of Christ was broken in payment for your sin. The cross is where the blood of Christ was shed for the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And it was on the cross that Jesus cried out on your behalf so that you become a faithful worshiper, so that you become a citizen of heaven, so that you become a citizen of the kingdom of God for all time. It was on the cross that Jesus cried, it is what? Finished. Cross-centered bearings. The cross points us to Christ. Christ brings us to God. And being brought to God must be responded to in worship. There is no option. And why would you want an option? A Bible scholar by the name of Nichols wrote this in 1958. He said, 
Worship is the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. It alone will endure, like the love for God which it expresses into heaven, when all other activities of the church will have passed away. Repeat after me, O magnify the Lord with me, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together, and let us exalt his name together. Our Father, we come to you now asking you, pleading with you and begging you, Lord, that at Grace Bible Church we would never deviate, we would never drift, that the word of God, the cross of Christ, the gospel of Jesus our Savior would always be our compass, pointing us straight heavenward. Lord, we pray for dynamic and glorious worship here that would be pleasing to heaven more than it's pleasing to us. I pray, Lord, that the songs that we sing would be from hearts lifted up in joy and in thankfulness and in awe and in fear and in gratitude. I pray that we would develop more and more a culture of hearing the word of God, that we would be a church that doesn't mind hearing an entire chapter of the Bible read aloud, that doesn't mind sitting through an hour-long sermon and then another one and another one. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church characterized by worship through loving, tender fellowship. I pray that we would be a church characterized by a sobriety and a soberness when we receive the Lord's table. I pray that we would be a church characterized by joy and gratitude and awe at the the salvation of Christ when we worship through baptism. I pray that we would be a church that worships through giving, that we are in such awe of our salvation that we would desperately give all we can that others may hear. I pray that we would be a church characterized by men and women and children who eagerly yearn to obey you and to do all that you have commanded us because it's pleasing to our Savior, Jesus Christ the one whom we worship and in whose name we pray, amen.